Welcome to the Prolific Creations Podcast. I'm joined uh, here today with uh, Roy Davis, owner and creator of Red Lantern Escape Room. So thank you, Roy, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So uh, can you kind of walk us through, of, first of all, you know, how did you get into escape rooms? Uh, well, most directly, I got into escape rooms by hearing about them from some friends I, I mean, they sounded great. They're everything I loved about entertainment, like immersive experiences. And so, yeah, I played one and I was hooked. Right. Awesome. So how far in then in your escape room uh, endeavor, did you come to the point where you're like, hey, you know what? You know, I think you can do this. Let me give this a try and and, and really see, you know, just take a crack at it. Uh, My second game okay so the first game i played uh happy to give them a shout out basement of mm. past la have you played that one yeah so just the set design it feels like you're in a basement it smells like a basement uh there were great clues and interactive puzzles that made you like feel smart when you solve them right and i don't know if they're still doing it but when i was up there they pulled pictures off our social media and put them in picture frames like on the desk. I was just blown away by it, even though I went with a whole bunch of smart friends who had solved everything by the time I turned around and like all the puzzles were open. Um, So I wanted to do that every weekend for the rest of my life. It was such a great experience, but it was a long drive for me at least. And so the second game, we played one here that was not as good it mm. was very gen one not that there's anything wrong necessarily with generation one escape rooms but it was supposed to be a historical game set in the 1800s and yet you had to find a clue inside a soap dispenser in a modern bathroom that i didn't even think was part of the game which is not good and i thought wow i should be able to create something better than this and so i had a plan to open a really small room just like one or two office rooms but I was talking about it to my family and then my brother said you know I'm he retired early got golden parachuted out of his big internet startup company uh, and uh, but he was looking for something to do so he joined on and then my mother said hey I want to do this with my kids and so it ended up being a much bigger project than I would have been able to do on my own and right. so that's kind of how I got there. Awesome. No, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, um I'm I'm you know, uh I adore the fact that, you know, you jumped on it early on cuz typically, you know, for from people that I've interviewed in the past, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, usually, you know, people will go 50, 100, you know, even hundreds of rooms in before they actually begin to be like, "Hey, you know what? Let's take a shot at this." And even, you know, even then so I know, you know, especially the cost factor uh, just even, you know, to do one room, to do a set is just expensive. Um, and, you know, a lot of times it's like, okay, like, um, you know, talking to a bunch of creators is like, you know, I, I don't really work in carpentry or, you know, the tech side of not, you know, well, well, ver- you know, versed in or anything. And so um, the fact that, you know, for the second room, just we're like, hey, let's do this. And yeah, I mean, sometimes I wish I had played a hundred rooms because there's stuff that we didn't know going in. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm glad I jumped on it early when the market wasn't as saturated. But uh, yeah, it definitely was a learning experience. Right. 
Right, right. And so then can you share a bit about your 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 background and how it led you to the world of immersive experiences? Uh, well, I was one of those kids who played D&D in high school. And, uh, and this was during the kind of end of the satanic panic. I don't know if you've seen Stranger Things. Okay. But yeah. yeah, so yep. <laughs> it was a kind of, uh, yeah, going against the grain doing that. But, uh, but in Southern California, there were a lot of gaming conventions in the 80s and 90s. And so my friends and I went there. And at those conventions, I discovered live action role playing, which they had there, which I thought was a blast. Um, because I should have been a theater kid in high school. I didn't really get into that until later. And uh, and so then I started trying to come up with my own live action role-playing games for the convention and then just for my friends. But since I've always been a huge horror fan, I started reading Stephen King in elementary school along with like oh. Clive Barker and Dean Coons and all those people I probably shouldn't have been reading at an early age. I kind of put a kind of spooky spin to my live action games. And I'd always uh, like mysteries as well, played a lot of Clue with my family as a kid, went to a couple of murder mystery dinner theaters. So I kind of yeah. made them more mysteries than D&D LARPs. Although I used some of the mechanics from traditional LARPs, like my first games with my friends, I had a player death option which I quickly removed from future games after five minutes into one of my games, finding my friend Dan in the bathtub. <laughs> like I pulled apart that and there's something behind that curtain. It's kind of spooky, but it's just my friend lying in the bathtub reading a comic. B had been, B is, B, he had been killed five minutes into the game and had oh, to wow. wait out the rest of the two hours. And I'm okay, yeah, yeah. I'm taking, I'm taking player death out. Right. And then uh, the Saw movies uh, came out and I'm like, oh, I want to combine creepy puzzles yeah. with my murder mystery. And I, <laughs> the first one, I rented a couple hotel rooms, ended up handcuffing my friends to dirty old beds and sinks and <laughs> had them crawling around trying to find the keys. Um, so uh, even before I knew escape rooms existed right. i was creating things that were kind of similar right to escape rooms and uh i had a friend kind of turn me on to the wonderful world of immersive theater yeah. which southern california holds i'm lucky to be in such a rich area for that right i don't know if you've done any but we've got delusion here yearly which is a haunted immersive experience there's a yeah. one called the alone experiment which had me going, walking through at night, kind of the, some spooky, <laughs> dangerous parts of LA. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the game with Michael Douglas, but like you didn't know who was actors around you and yeah. who wasn't. Like there was this couple at a garden, which ended up giving me a clue. And then this kind of homeless guy living in, uh, under an underpath yeah. was one of the actors. That it was, was awesome. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, so I still am still a big fan of immersive theater and try to do that whenever I can. Right, right. And so did you, did you, I mean, even then, so right before, I guess, starting your, your own company here with uh, Red Lantern, I mean, you were basically already creating escape room 
experiences to yeah, a degree, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, even mentioning, you know, with even with your with your buddies and people of just renting out a few hotel rooms, right? Which I know uh, there's some companies that do that at a at a grander scale and yeah, yeah. a bunch of money for people to experience. But um, did you think that it would be something that you would, I guess, make or be a part of the industry of escape rooms? Uh, when I was first doing that, escape rooms didn't exist. So. Okay. Yeah, they kind of, I started doing this before. I mean, they might have been beginning yeah. over in Kyoto way back then, but I didn't, you know, know what was happening. Right. Yeah. So uh, I, yeah, uh, I thought, despite not knowing about escape rooms, I thought maybe this was something I could do to make money. I actually had my own escape room company, or not escape room, sorry, murder mystery company oh. online okay. where I would, either send people one of my pre-created uh, stories. I had one like clue where you had a, you know, Professor Plum and everything, which is total copyright infringement. And luckily I had never sold that one. Um, right. But uh, I had games like that, um, like a game like The Sopranos. Um, but I would also uh, design a murder mystery based on customers' requests. Like I designed a... Star Wars themed murder mystery for a lady's husband on his birthday. Um, but I didn't get too many commissions for that. And so I kind of let that okay. slide. But um, is it something you think you would, um, you know, do again? Or I mean, maybe not professionally. I Not too long ago, I ran a 30, 40 person murder mystery for a church youth group just because a friend asked if I could help them out. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I can still see myself doing that like as a hobby, definitely. Right, right, right. Uh, so then at this point now, you know, uh, where are you in your, you know, how many experiences you've done as far as escape rooms? Uh, you mentioned how like starting a business after just playing two was that's a pretty low number um my total i think i'm only about 30 to 40 30 to 40 okay yeah for an enthusiast that's really low but i'm also a small business owner and i don't right. have a lot of time right no yeah and that's something to factor in as well and yeah. then so i mean you mentioned you know 30 to 40 but um you know uh, i asked the game master one time like hey like you know uh, for people that players that complete your room you know what typically is the number because you know like on the way where people typically ask how many rooms you've done and they'll tell us like yeah usually it's 30 40 50 and like they consider them enthusiasts because you know they that i mean escape rooms are expensive to begin with and the fact that they've done even more than a handful right that's you know still a lot yeah that's why when i if i have players that talk about playing multiple games i hear them you know comparing my game to like others and they just you know ask me if i've played such and such mm -hmm. i always direct them to like the uh socal escape room enthusiast facebook group because a lot of owners will post discounts there or beta testing because yeah i know it's expensive and i try to give my players options to <laughs> find cheaper rooms out there right um but as but as far as like total number played i you just reminded me there was a kind of meet and greet for escape room owners and players as well in san diego okay. years back that i went to when we were still building our room yeah and everyone had these name tags on with these numbers i'm all is that 
are people writing their IQ because it was like 182 and stuff. And then I realized everyone that you're supposed to write your name and the number of rooms you play. Oh, wow. So I walked around, you know, hi, my name is Roy. I've played 12 rooms and it was just so much lower than everybody else. And I just <laughs> felt really ashamed to be toting around to 12 there. Right. No, no. Yeah. I mean, even then, like, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to even hear, you know, people say that they've done hundreds of hundreds of rooms and it's like, like, where do you even go to find rooms? You know what I mean? I mean, obviously here in SoCal, it's it's saturated, but even then, that's, you know, uh, 100, 200 rooms. Madrid, I hear, has yeah. a lot. If you're willing to travel, Kyoto is where it started. Um, there's a city in Canada, which I'm forgetting. Toronto. Yeah. So I guess they started in Kyoto, moved to like Spain and then Toronto and then like the United States got them late. So if you're willing to do some international travel, there are a lot of escape right. rooms you can right. write. If you're the ones in, in Spain, like I think it was Greece are just intense. Oh yeah, there's a whole, they have, you know, different laws regarding like ocean <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard, oh yeah, there are stories I've heard about super intense rooms. I want to try one of those sometime i don't want to be thrown in the back of the van and cut with a pizza cutter which i heard someone oh wow well, yeah there was an intense game in san diego that uh they had to shut down because it was too intense it was violating them california laws yeah they moved to like wisconsin or something where the laws were a little more lax wow that's crazy i th- i thought that you know even just having a taser or even uh I know there's a room where they have like a, a shock collar. It was intense, but oh, yeah. much more than that. And it, I don't know. That's... Yeah. I mean, hey, you know, people are into when they're yeah, into it. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. There's a group for everything, right? There's a group for everything. Um, <laughs> uh, so then can you kind of walk us through your creative process and and how, how that looks and um, what you ended up actually using the most of in your creative process as you're creating your rooms? Uh, my creative process really depends on who I'm creating for. Okay. Like when I was creating for myself, my first game, I'd always enjoyed the Blue Bayou restaurant at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. I love the, like the, the set design effect where it made you feel like you're at night in the Louisiana Bayou with the stars and everything. And then you'd walk out and be back in the 90 degree California sun. It was always just right. the shock of that transition I always thought was cool. So so my first priority was to find a space where I could build an outdoor type setting. And so once I had that setting, I had to figure out why are the players here? You know, right. what brought them to Louisiana and then what mystery they're solving. And so then the puzzles kind of came in at the end. So it was kind of a setting to storyline to puzzles for that. Um, For my second game, we designed it as a team versus team game and that very much shaped the story and the setting and then the puzzles. Right. And I know puzzles are sometimes first for some people, but I find that it's easier to build them once you have the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. <laughs> no, yeah, 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 you're good, you're good. And so then how do you make sure that, uh, I know you mentioned doing the story first and then uh, the puzzles, you know, I don't want to say last or second, but, you know, later, how do you ensure that 
in order to, and you mentioned even the immersiveness at Disneyland with their with their restaurant. So how do you ensure then that with your puzzles that they continue to not better or enhance, but just be included in that immersiveness of your escape room? Everything should reinforce the story right. and the theme. Right. And so I I never understood like some escape rooms where it's like, oh, you're on the trail of a serial killer. Quick, do some Sudoku. It's like, well, uh, why? <laughs> like, like the puzzles should just reinforce either the story or the setting or the character. Um, like, uh, so for our Midnight on the Bayou game, I don't want to give away too much, <laughs> yeah. but you're helping five ghosts. They're friendly ghosts. It's appropriate for ages 13 and up. Uh, you're helping them finish their unfinished business because they died early as students. And uh, you're helping you know, kind of release them from limbo because they're there because they have still too much on their plate that they didn't get to finish in life. So uh, one of the characters, our jock James, is also a romantic. And so all of his puzzles around kind of his area of interest which is romance so he's trying to get his gal to marry him he leaves messages for the person who's going to be the best man at his wedding uh he he and his gal have a special song which you eventually get to hear um his avatar his spirit avatar is represented by a literal heart uh the story the telltale heart comes into play Mm -hmm. so just having a really strong character and a strong theme, you know, it's like, okay, I can have a telltale heart puzzle now. So it's like, yeah. So I find it easier to move the puzzles into an existing story and theme that way, because I would have never gone the other way and thought, Hmm, how can I use Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart to provide characters a clue? I wouldn't have started with that. But now that I had, some you know had to figure out things to do with hearts i go go hmm you know tear up the planks here here is the beating of the hideous heart which is a clue to find something hidden in the room right right and so and and i'm glad you do that as a creator um because you know there's there's multiple times where my wife and i when we're playing a room um and i usually find this you know uh with with i guess horror scary rooms Mm -hmm. um you know you're super dark lighting right um, you're being either you're being chased or you know just that anticipation of something's coming and it's like oh and it, you know you mentioned Sudoku and it's like you know there's just weird just puzzle that's kind of thrown in there like oh you have to I don't know you know just do this puzzle to to get away from the killer and it's like well like why would a yeah. killer like you know logically in my mind I'm like why would a killer have this thing where you know have this puzzle for you to get a key to get out. You know what I mean? Um, and so, and that was in leading to my next question of, you know, um, how I've differentiated it even early on in my, uh, you know, escape room endeavor is like, there's escape rooms that I've noticed that will have puzzles where, you know, where you have to find certain things to solve a certain lock or they ha- they'll have task base, right? Uh, where you have to complete the certain thing. And um, by doing that, then it'll, you know, release a, a code or a key for the lock or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of can you tell us your thoughts on, you know, just what you think more of, you know, should escape rooms, especially as, you know, the industry is leading, not leading, but going into 
more immersive theater where it's not maybe as puzzle heavy, but more task heavy. Or like, hey, no, you have to go back to this room and um, complete this. Uh, I think having tasks is great because not everyone is a puzzler. Right. Like, right. I think the best thing an escape room can do is have as much variety mm-hmm. in puzzles yeah. as possible to accommodate different learning styles and educations and backgrounds. And, you know, we now know there are different types of intelligence, you know, and so just as many different types of puzzles as possible, let's more people participate and if one of your puzzles is actually just a task designed as a puzzle Mm -hmm. that makes someone who's not a puzzler feel smart and able to participate then that's awesome i think tasks are important because not everyone you know can do quick sudoku or whatever you know and so and and also there's just a sense of accomplishment with a task it's like you know sure this isn't a puzzle that only certain people can figure out this is a task which means given enough time you'll finish it there's still if it's a well-built task you uh you should feel satisfaction on finishing it like we that's something we added recently to our first game it's you know almost midnight on the bio is almost seven years old now and we've started adding tasks just so people who are not puzzlers uh can have something to do or the younger players can have something to do like uh I don't believe when you played, we had the duck hunt active yet where you were fishing for ducks. Yeah, so now we we had that carnival game that wasn't being used really, a bunch of ducks in our pond there. And so now we've got a fishing pole and you have to find four special ducks. So it's a bit of luck, like a real carnival game. It's right, like, right. how many ducks do you have to fish out before right. you get the four ones that you and need? Then, and then that adds to the immersive. Yeah, and, and players love that. So yeah. that's not a traditional puzzle. You know, you'll get it eventually, but it's like, how quick can you get it? You know, did you guess the right duck? Oh, I got that one in the corner has the thing on its bottom you need. (laughs) Um, So, yes, I I think having tasks in escape rooms are great. I don't think it should be all tasks because you're kind of there to also solve some puzzles because nothing really replaces that feeling of like, oh, I figured it out, you know? Oh, yeah, for me, it's that that click. Yeah, yeah, yes. And that's why people come back to escape rooms is to try to recapture that feeling, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And so, and kind of answer this in part, but um, in in a world where, you know, like you mentioned earlier, right, even I think, what, five, maybe, you know, eight years ago, right? SoCal wasn't as saturated as it is. Not at all. No, right? And so then where the industry is slowly becoming, I don't want to even say slowly, but quickly in this case becoming more saturated how do you make sure that your rooms provide a fresh take on you know a theme or a concept uh well like you said it wasn't saturated back you know eight years ago and that's about when we developed ours so uh that wasn't something i needed to worry about but we ended up standing out anyway because we are i think the largest physical space for a room in or one of the largest in southern california we've got like a thousand square feet back there in the warehouse so that sets us apart i think the setting sets us apart um the fact that we have parallel instead of a single serial clue chain we have parallel clues makes us different some of the tech um but yes definitely with our second game curse of the bayou uh the market was getting saturated at that point 
and we had to do something to make us stand out. And so that's why, one of the reasons why I decided to do a team versus team game because there was only one or two others at the time. And uh, did you play Battleship over at Yacht and other escape rooms? Yeah. Battleship, they unfortunately had to close down. Although I hear Battleship exists somewhere else now. I believe. Yes. Yes. Um, So yeah, so team versus team is pretty unique. And so that sets us apart. Um, Kind of the clue approach, the process of elimination solve is different. And then we have, I think, the only language selectable room in Southern California. I saw that. Yeah. I I don't think I've ever seen that in other rooms here in California. So that is, it opens to a wider market too. Right. And me personally as a player, I don't think I ever would have thought of that. And so the fact that you have done that and it does make it more accessible, I think, you know, it just, again, just opens the market to so many more, you know, essentially customers, more players now. Yeah. Because, um, that was one of the things I noticed is that escape rooms are kind of only for a, a segment of the population because uh, for a lot of reasons, um, like uh, maybe talking about this really, but like accessibility, you just mentioned like yeah. when I started playing escape rooms, I have some friends who are differently abled, you know, and I, they weren't with me during my first runs, but like I was going through these spaces and crawling down these narrow corridors or climbing or stepping up these things. And I realized, hey, my friend couldn't play this game. You know, right. uh, this there's this game is by no means ADA compliant. And right. so I thought I want everyone to be able to play my games. And so our first game, that's one of the reasons I chose the warehouse, not only because I wanted to create that kind of outdoor setting but also because having the warehouse gave us enough space for the wheelchair ramps and the wide doorways and passages and and that way someone who is differently abled can still play and I lost track of where I was going and so yeah as far as uh and language is another accessibility thing because a lot of escape rooms have puzzles that are based on nuances of the English language that are riddle or just text-based puzzles like when is a door not a door have you heard that one I feel like I have but it's yeah when it's a jar yeah yep yep and that only works in English that won't translate to any other language we have a jar and a jar is an English quirk and so I realized that you know people who are, you know, English as a second language speakers, they might, not everyone, but might have trouble with some of those very language-based puzzles. And so that's why I designed Curse of the Bayou with the language options because just accessibility. I want escape rooms to be able to be played by more people. Yeah. And uh, I think that helps in a, yeah, small aspect but oh no yeah for sure for sure so then can you kind of tell us and walk us through how important storytelling is to the creation of escape rooms and how do you ensure that the narrative you know actually engages participants because many times you know you'll go to a room and you know the set design immaculate right the the props amazing you know a lot of times they'll have actors you know great acting but when it gets down to the storytelling man i like it just i don't know 
it's not there and it not that it ruins the experience but it just mm-hmm. it's like wow i wish it could have been better so how do you ensure that as a as a creator so uh my background is in storytelling i mean it didn't start out that way it started out wanting to be a paleontologist i think and <laughs> then i got my bachelor's in psychology but um i have an ma in uh, English and creative writing from Miami University in Ohio. And then I have an MFA in writing for children from Bath Spa in England. And so I, because I wanted to be a, you know, the next JK Rowling mm-hmm. without all the, you know, <laughs> other stuff associated with her. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be a, like a middle grade children's book writer. And uh, so writing and storytelling has always been a love of mine that's you know when i was creating my murder mysteries it was all about the story and the right. puzzles kind of filled in effort so yeah so storytelling i agree it's super important i think even if you survey players and like the hardcore 500 room players will always you know list puzzles as you know puzzles are most important and you know obviously that's what you're there for that's what gives you the rush of right. having solved something right but i think even the puzzlers, they notice the story. I mean, it's there. It's like we were talking about. It's tying the puzzles together. It's giving you a reason, you know, why is the serial killer letting you get out of his, you know, house? You know, well, because he's testing you. It's Saw. He's looking for a replacement in whatever Saw movie the guy was looking for a replacement. (laughs) Um, You know, so, yeah, I think I've already, sorry, <laughs> what's the question again? Yeah, so then how do you ensure as a creator oh. the, you know, story? Yeah, so, and I think I talked about this already a bit with the, giving the example of the James, the romantic uh, puzzle. Um, but yeah, you just, you just keep hitting the story. You just want to like hammer it over their heads because, you know, they're, they're already, especially experienced players, they come into the room and they're starting to scavenge, you know, they're, they they're kind of in that uh they kind of go on autopilot because they've had maybe escape rooms in the past where you haven't had stories so they're just looking to start scavenging not paying attention to what's going on right so we have uh the story i talk about the story in the introduction i kind of have a funny introduction i do where i really hit the story the story the entire game story is summarized in a bulletin board that looks like it's made by the current students of the high school uh very yeah student made looking bulletin board but the entire story is there so players can come back and see it and see the characters they're helping at any time um there are constant audio clues the spirits that you're helping in midnight on the bayou are talking to the players throughout the game they're harassing them they're just giving little bits of dialogue and every dialogue both characterizes the ghost uh reminds the players what their area of expertise in like all of james's dialogue says hey don't worry about solving clues grab a dance partner and dance you know there aren't any chaperones now and so he's always bringing it back to the romance the explorers talking about you know have you looked everywhere have you really explored your space so like every you know the visual cues like the explorer you know you've got an airplane starting up sound for her so just you yeah if you just sense players are thinking about puzzles you just have to hit them over the head with story again and again and again to remind them hey you know puzzles are great but there's another reason you're here you know 
they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can be carried through the storyline and do your cool puzzles at the same time. And so I just think you really have to hammer the story home and again and again through different means. Yeah. And something that I found, I think later on, you know, maybe like 60, 70 rooms in is just not not only how important the story is, but just how much it really helps with with the flow of the room. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and just mentioned going back to like the rooms where they didn't have a good story, we constantly had to be nudged by our game master. Like, hey, like, you know, we're focusing on this. We want to look for this. Make sure you're staying on task for this. Especially in rooms where it's like there's so much going on. It's like, okay, like, and you mentioned this earlier, right? You know, typically in a room, you're just kind of in the autopilot. Like, okay, you find anything that can, you know, be used for a puzzle or something. And so, and so that's, you know, naturally, that's what we do. We still do, <laughs> honestly. Um, my wife and I will do that with their group. We'll just, you know, start looking around. Okay, what do we need? And um, and they'll have, they'll have a little introduction of like, hey, this is why you're here. But then after that, it kind of just falls off the boat of like, okay, you know, now our game master is nudging us every every time we solve a puzzle or maybe we're looking at something that's for a puzzle later on yeah and it just ruins that flow of like okay like and and on top of that and i'll get to this a little bit later but on top of that you know the game master isn't really in character and and oh goodness yeah that is so i had a game an in room clue giver scientist guy in a lab coat who was on his phone the entire time oh, and just wearing these like high-end sneakers under his lab coat which is really weird looking <laughs> right right no yeah I, I mean it was again like my wife and i we love like I, I mean i love more scary spooky haunted you know actors chasing and all that my wife is more like the mellow like yeah that anticipation but preferably no actors but um we were doing a room you know dark like very you know typical you know sorry typical scary escape room was like very low very low light and then all we hear the sweetest game master ever you know you know, soft voice and just sweet. And all you hear is, hey, guys, like, you know, why don't we look over here? And it's like, oh, just kills it. And we're like, okay. Yeah. Now I'm not scared anymore. It's kind of like, okay, I'm just in a dark room. And just, again, ruined that version. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And so that flow of, of really just, okay, like, I know what I need to do next. And even then, so I, this, I know this is a pride thing. It's an ego thing of like, okay, like, I only want help when I ask for help. Yeah. Right. Um, and again, I know it's an ego thing. I know it's a pride thing. Um, but you know, it's my whole group, so it's okay. The collective thing. It's not just me. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, just that flow and uh just I yeah, I, I I appreciate it that, you know, your rooms ensure that 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 flow is still there. Right? Even in a room where there's so much going on that and you mentioned this earlier too, that everyone has something to do something, right? Um that they're not just kind of just standing there unless, you know, they're just being brats about it and just not wanting to do anything. But regardless, right, if they're wanting to be participant, they have something to do and yeah, can can do it, right? Um, so, yeah, can you kind of share an example then of a particularly successful s- storyline from, you know, maybe not just your escape rooms, but also the murder mysteries that you've created or when you were creating um, story campaigns for, for your uh, live action role play? Um, so one of my murder mystery games, uh, I had, I don't know if you saw that there's a friends episode where they play a murder mystery where a buzzer goes off. And every time the buzzer goes off, 
like an egg timer. They're supposed to read the next thing their character. Oh yeah. Said. Yep. I thought that's what, so I, I pulled that into uh, one of my murder mystery games, but my, uh, I had a clue based mystery where, uh, Mrs. White, the, one of the characters, uh, her jewelry was going to get stolen and, but I didn't tell her character that I just gave her instructions to every once in a while, check the safe because, you know, I had an actual safe that I, even when I did the game at location for other people, I would bring these props, including the safe. And so I just stole it out of her safe at one point without her knowing it and so one time she went and checked the safe and screamed and everyone came to see what she was screaming about because her care she was really invested in this jewelry and her care she literally screamed and that would just just like you know she's a very uh selfish surface person you know very material person and she was playing that and so when what she was so concerned about was finally gone, like it was, it wasn't acting for her to go, what, where, who, which one of you did this? And of course it wasn't one of them as part of the story. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, just having something that you're hinting at for so long or playing up for so long, you know, this person is concerned about this and then take it away from them. You know, that just, pushes the story along it just right. you know like it the what you're taught in creative writing classes is you know page one the conflict the conflict for the entire novel you need to see it right away mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. uh because it drives story it makes you invested and so if you can add conflict to your story and and have that come to a head it just kind of drives players forward it makes them want to solve the next puzzle be like you're talking about like you know why am i going from a to b well it's like well now we've got to get miss white's jewelry back someone stole it who stole it why would you steal it now when mr body's lying on the floor right right. (laughs) uh but uh yeah and and as far as the i talked about the james example as far as uh you know that story being pushed along because you want to get him together with his gal, even if it, you know, he's dead now, but he can still meet with his gal. Right, right, right. Um, and I've had players actually once their song, and they finally get the couple's song playing, and she says, I do. I've had them actually dance together, and some of them go, oh, that's so sweet. And yeah. some of them tear up, and it's just, it's, yeah, it's just awesome to yeah. see. That's amazing. Uh, can you tell us a time then where you experienced a good story in in one of the escape rooms that you've completed. Have you played The Last Experiment? The Zoe prequel? Back when the old... Eyes. I have not. Ah, no. okay. um, did you play the old Zoe? I did. Okay, did so but... Yeah, so they had The Last Experiment, which was a prequel to explain why Zoe existed, how right. the spirit existed, and they ended up doing kind of a tech explanation. A There is a... Someone was experimenting with a time machine, and... They made it more realistic. It wasn't, you know, high f- science fiction fantasy. Okay. You know, George Orwell. You sit in a chair. You go to. It was like just. It would. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Devs the series, but it was just something that would give you a glimpse, a small glimpse into the past or the future. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. Of course, things went awry, and this 
time devices why Zoe was created. It yeah. was the explanation for the haunting. But the time machine was a big part of the story. It was why you were there, figuring out what went wrong. There was this huge device in the center of one of the rooms that was really cool looking, but they hammered that aspect of this. You know, you were here, something went wrong. There's a time machine and you... For some reason, despite everything going wrong, you needed to get this thing activated. Mm -hmm. And so when you finally got all the pieces, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, felt like some of the video games you play where you go to this room, get another piece for the device, and then that leads you to another piece. Right. So you, you get the time machine working and in this large kind of laboratory we were in, there was a door that had been locked the entire time with a touch keypad electronic lock that we had zero clues for. And so you activate the time machine, you see back in time through a video overlay of the room you're standing in, two professors walk down the hallway, go up and push the buttons on the keypad and you have to run over and put your fingers where they're putting. And it was, the the video overlay was perfect. The scientists were the right size. It looked like this was actually happening. Right. So the story and the clue payoff were, you know, together. It, it just was so great to just see that the story, you know, you finally get the thing active and not only are you progressing the story, but you're also progressing one of the most important clues, you know, getting through this lock. And I thought that would just a great way to tie everything together. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. So in, in, in obviously in, in escape rooms, puzzle design is, you know, very crucial. How do you come up with puzzles that are both challenging and solvable? Right. Cause I mean, yeah, there's obviously a wide, range or variety of players that come through where hey this is their first escape room to like you mentioned no you know these are people that have completed hundreds and hundreds of escape rooms so how do you make sure that you kind of i don't want to say tailor but again just make it those puzzles that are challenging for those that maybe have done hundreds of rooms or you know to where it's also solvable uh well I think what would be challenging for me and solvable for me and fun and interesting and then I'll create a bunch of those because I I, I enjoy puzzle creation. I, I think it's really fun to do even if you never build them out. And so I'll find the ones that I think are the best and I'll run it by friends and family and sometimes other escape room owners because I'm friends with some of the people around here. Mm -hmm. And then if it seems like it'd be fun, is is this feasible to build? Because I design very complicated things and people should really tell me to stop doing that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and if it is feasible to build, then we, you know, build like a rough version of it. And then, but I mean, the main way to ensure that puzzles are, interesting and solvable is beta testing lots and lots of beta testing because you know you're you're really even when you have friends that are escape room owners you're still designing in a vacuum i mean your audience is so much more limited than what your eventual audience will be which is you know hopefully tens of thousands of people over time um so yeah you've just got to do multiple rounds of multiple day beta testing and then 
you know, adjust between the betas and then do another beta and then make adjustments. And then once beta is over and the room is running, you're still making tweaks in the first weeks and months that the game is going on based on how players are reacting to make sure the puzzles are interesting and solvable and challenging. And and I think you can tell when you play a relatively new room, you can tell the rooms that have done serious beta and rooms that haven't. You can see, I think, rooms where the experience of customers has been integrated back into the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even though everyone hates doing the beta, you need to do the beta. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Uh, can, can you tell us then how do you create a puzzle that is unique to your own, right? Because after even doing so many rooms, you kind of start to notice a trend of like, hey, like, if everyone does this kind of puzzle like okay i know how to do this i can solve this pretty quickly so then how do you ensure that you have that uniqueness of not just to your story but to yourself as the as a designer and making it your own so remember how i said i'd only played two rooms when i <laughs> yeah uh i didn't know what was out there right. so i just created things i hadn't seen and later I played rooms and realized, hey, you have a puzzle similar to mine, but that was just by coincidence. You know, I like I hadn't seen that puzzle before. Um, but yeah, for my second room, I just and again, it's you've got you know this essentially unlimited possibility of potential puzzles, and I mean it's it's intimidating there are so many even if you've played a bunch of rooms and you've seen tons of puzzles and for me maybe it's just you know i'm lucky i've got the creative writing background coming up with puzzles has never been challenging for me like new ones just because there's so many things that you can do i also have the psychology background which helps you know like so many interesting ways you can make the mind work and so to kind of, you know, limit that intimidating infinite possibility of puzzles, that's why I think I start with the story and the setting and that kind of, you know, narrows it down what what would make sense. You know, like you were talking about earlier, you know, getting away from a serial killer by doing a quick, you know, <laughs> word puzzle. Um, and then, yeah, and... To make them unique, I think I just make sure to create something I've never seen, never heard talked about, never seen in a TV show. And uh, yeah, for me, making the unique puzzles is the easy part. Implementing them, <laughs> getting the electronics, getting the Arduino and Raspberry Pi and mainframe to talk to each other, that's that's the hard part. So. I guess I'm lucky in that puzzles come easy to me. I'm lucky in that I over-design and make complicated things that my poor family has to then <laughs> make into reality. Right, right. Um, but there, we talked about like uh, puzzle design a bit earlier, how I come up with ideas. Um, I was lucky enough to design an escape room for a TV pilot. Okay. And... and and the budget they've got, it's so different than the budget I'm used right. to, you know. Right. Like, even though with my family helping me, I was able to do a bigger budget than I initially planned. A TV show budget is, like, crazy. And also, 
you can have puzzles in a show that you couldn't have in a real escape room because player wear and tear would make them unfeasible or OSHA rules when you know, if you've got a controlled environment of a TV show yeah. and you're only going to run it once, um, then, you know, the sky's the limit. Like right. I, Jack Black did a escape room for Red Nose Day and they had puzzles in there uh, that you really wouldn't be able to run in the real world. But but because, you know, they're one and done, you can make them super cool. And right. so I was able to design like this mirror puzzle, like they use the mirrors in the mummy to illuminate something. And then I had another puzzle that had five and 10 foot wide sandstone gears. They're actually just foam painted, you know, like sandstone. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so having uh, the sky's the limit uh, can be fun. But in that case, I was uh, restrained in that, you know, it had to be this Egyptian theme and it had to be technology that would be possible at that time because they right. wanted an escape room that was very historically, historically accurate. And so I had to do the research, you know, when were gears invented? You know, when did people start using gears and what type of handcrafted gears yeah. were used? And I've just seen the most recent Indiana Jones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like, so I just like went down the rabbit hole of, you know, what technology Egyptians might have available to them. And so that kind of limited what puzzles I could create. Um, but that was really fun yeah. exercise to be able to do. Right. <laughs> so then as an escape room creator and owner that's been around for, you said, seven years. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself, or when you, I guess when you first initially started, did you have a kind of like a milestone that you kind of set in place for? It's like, okay, you know, this is everything I wanted. This is everything that, you know, I wanted to implement or include. I'm good here. Or do you find yourself now, you know, years later, kind of like, you know what, hey, can I improve this or can I add? And I know you mentioned this, touched on this a little bit earlier as far as um, adding a task, another, or not another, but a task-based puzzle in, but to where, hey, you know, how can we change this oh, combination? Yeah, it's it's so. never, I mean, you always want to poke at stuff and, and make, like, yeah, it's Midnight's almost seven years old and we're about to replace one of the big puzzles because even though it works well now, it could work just a little bit better and we want the best experience right. for people. Um, so, and, and I'm always like in my free time, dreaming up things, creating things. Um, and yeah, I have, and I, the, actually the warehouse space has the wiring for an entire, another escape room because the original design was to have 10 ghosts and it to be a pl- 20 player game. So we have the physical architecture back there and all the low voltage lines coming through like lockers and weird places you wouldn't think that are low (laughs) voltage and we spent a lot of money doing that and so I would like to one day have I don't think I think 20 people even though it's a thousand square foot space I think 20 people would feel crowded so what I would like to do for that is to have two games back there that a game master can go in and in five or ten minutes completely change the game Mm. so you can you know play midnight and go back to the you know 60s 50s no yeah 50s uh setting or you can play the new version and go back to the 80s and deal with five new spirits and have five new tasks and then uh this room uh the waiting room that we're sitting in right now Uh, i have an idea to make this a mini 30 minute escape room um 
And I eventually want to turn this over to my family and then go up to Astoria, Oregon, because Astoria is gorgeous and I want to run and escape from there. <laughs> so yeah, I'm always, yeah, I'm never content to just sit where I'm at. I'm always designing and thinking what could be the next thing. Yeah. Thank you for that. So as we conclude this episode, can you, yeah, I know time <laughs> flies by quickly. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, Uh, as we conclude this episode can you name uh, in no particular order top five escape rooms that you've completed top five yeah and again in no particular order you know that way you know oh goodness people aren't complaining later like what my room wasn't up yeah you know um so you know i mentioned it already because it was my first game always have a place in my heart gotta love the basement uh, the st- have you played all of their games? Yes, yes. The study when you put you send your friend in and it's pitch black, but you can see because you're watching what they're doing through infrared security yep. cameras, and then the person is in there and they can't see him. Ah, that was yeah. So just yeah, Caden. I don't know if Caden's even associated with the basement anymore, but he was the one, the owner back when I was doing it. But um, yeah. The courtyard, them trucking in actual dirt to put in the courtyard and the tra- the little trailer they had out there. Yeah, that anyone who's looking for amazing setting and good theming should check out the basement. Um, Crossroads, locally, I mean, they've won... A- I don't need to hype up Crossroads. They've won awards. Yeah. Um, I mean, Madison and Luke, the owners, they come from theater set design, so their sets are top-notch. And they were one of the early people I met when I was building out, and they were both so helpful. And I'm still friends with them. They're awesome folks, and they've got, yeah, just great sets. Super professional. Everything runs smoothly. All the game masters are super professional over there. Um, That's two... uh, Locally, just down the street, uh, scenario, scenario escapes. Yep. Mad rapper and Doctor Haters. Eric's awesome. His friend is an artist, and so he has that resource to have an an artist uh, readily available to do the art direction. And so those rooms look great. I mean, the art is so cool. Yeah. I mean, the art was used in an animated version in his introduction um dr hater has some puzzles that i've never seen anywhere in escape room and and some of the physical puzzles especially in the first room uh the mad rapper i thought the the those physical set pieces were so cool that i got the name of those builders and i used them for our upstairs game curse of the bayou so i totally stole eric's builders for our game three um, Quest Tavern Last Supper was probably one of the most fun times I've ever had. The The host was played the crazy dinner host. Great. Um, have you played yes. Last Supper? Love Last Supper. The uh, reveal in the kitchen when the pots and pans rattle down. Yep. I've never seen a clue reveal like that. Yeah. So, I mean, just, yeah, mad props to the props there. Uh, and just really the owner is super sweet nice lady and but yeah just the host of that game five uh 
probably stash house. I mean, what a use of space. You can tell once you've played the whole game that it was a clothing store based on kind of house range, but like you never think about and just like the the under the bed space, just like how can we, you know, we hear you like secret passages, so we've added secret passages to your secret passages. <laughs> right. Yeah, just like, and oh my God, oh, there's a grow room and there's something behind the grow. Oh my goodness, yeah. Just like, it just kept going and going and then there's an upstairs. There's no way there's an upstairs. We thought we were done. Um, yeah, that was, that's just a great So sorry if I'm not mentioning any others you hadn't played yet because you've played a lot. No, you're good. Totally Um, fine. Well, thank you so much, Roy, for um, joining us on the Prolific Creations podcast. And for listeners out there, if you haven't already, check out uh, Red Lantern Escape Rooms and um, the shrooms that he has here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. (laughs) 